Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, Hillary on taxes. And Richard, you and I are talking now mid-September, kind of heart of the presidential election. The candidate's proposal is starting to get a little more scrutiny. And on that front, we turn today to Hillary Clinton's sort of <laughs> characteristically extensive um, tax proposals. And, and here's how I want to handle this. Before we get to Hillary and the specifics of her proposals, let's sort of start by setting a baseline. From a classical liberal's perspective – what does a good tax system look like? What are some of its defining characteristics? Well, the first thing that classical liberals do is they have a presumption against taxation. And the presumption comes from the fact that it is a forced government exaction against ordinary individuals. And they're very worried that what happens is this thing will actually go amok. And so the classical liberal essentially always views these things under a presumption of error to be rebutted. And the question then is how? And the first thing essentially what you'd want to do is to limit the discretion in terms of the object of taxation. And so the traditional classical liberal approach, starting with Aristotle, basically going through people like Locke and Smith and Hayek and so forth, was one that I've long endorsed, is essentially a flat tax on all income from all sources at the time of its realization or a flat tax on consumption. The theory about the flatness of this stuff is that it gets rid of one dimension of political uncertainty, and that's in the following way. If you have a flat tax, it doesn't put a revenue constraint, so you don't need to have a special amendment if you've got to raise taxes in order to fight foreign wars or something. But since you were doing it pro rata, uh, you don't have the intrigue of raising taxes on somebody else while trying to lower them against yourself. So it produces essentially a stabilization, um, which you never get, because people who are in favor of progressivity are in favor of it as an abstract concept by which they mean a progressive tax just means that the rate goes up as the amount that you get gets higher. But there is no natural curve for progressivity as to whether the difference between the top and the bottom is only 5% or whether it's two or threefold. And if you can start to fight over that particular element, then what's happened is the political forces will undercut the effectiveness of the actual tax regime. Uh, so the basic instinct, therefore, is keep the thing flat. The second thing is you generally want to keep it on a fairly broad base. And so you as a classical liberal are very much opposed to subject matter specific exemptions. So you don't want to say, well, we're going to basically exempt from taxation people who invest in oil and gas or people who invest in electric cars or people who invest in this, that or the other thing. And that's a form of industrial policy. And what it presupposes is that the government is tax collector can actually pick its winners and its losers. And for the most part, Governments are absolutely terrible at doing those things, and the flak tap stops them. And the third feature that you want about this is to limit the objects for which the tax could be spent. And on this one, there's sort of the basic model is that that associated with the United States Constitution, which says that you can tax in order to pay the public debt, you can tax to provide the public defense, and you can tax to provide for the general welfare of the United States, which means any particular expenditure, which if it helps one, will tend as any other public good is to help all. 
And if you could sort of limit the ends for which these governments are going to start to spend their particular money, what happens is yet another element of discretion is removed from the system because these are all public goods and it's harder to run uh, really malicious forms of redistribution in that system. Now, the difficulty with this model in the eyes of many people is that it doesn't account for redistribution of wealth from rich to poor, uh, which can be done in a number of different ways. One of the common devices is to say give people a charitable deduction to the extent that they discharge perfect you know, public purposes. And the theory on this is it's like a matching grant. The government gives you money, but you have to put your own money in. And the government doesn't get to pick the particular charity that you're doing, so you get a diversified portfolio. Today, that's obviously not regarded by most people as enough. So in the second best world, the basic intuition is to say, if you're going to deal with redistribution, don't increase its levels. If anything, look for incremental ways to reduce it so as to get rid of the political intrigue. The final question is, do you do it on income or do you do it on consumption? Over the years, I've moved very sharply in favor of a consumption tax because there are too many kinds of things where you don't know which way the classification goes. So if you're talking, for example about carried interest. There is both property appreciation on the one hand and deferred payments on services on the other. If you subject the two of these things to different regimes, you have a huge fight as to how you allocate this stuff. If you do it on consumption, then you just put the revenues in a lockbox and until you take them out and signal that they're going to be for um, for consumption, uh, they essentially are treated tax-free so you could avoid all those difficulties. So that would be the basic kind of model that I support. Okay, so with all that in mind, let's sort of take the Clinton proposals piece by piece. And I'll start off with this. Hillary wants to change the way that we tax capital gains. And, and so right now, you pay, you pay a 20% tax on realized gains from an investment that you've held for more than a year. Hillary would start the tax off at, at almost double that, 39.6%, and then the rate would decline from there until you hit 20% after holding the investment now for six years. And Richard, she says this is to combat what she calls quarterly capitalism. The the argument here is that businesses, they're too focused on their earnings report or their share prices and you want to reorient the system to focus on longer-term investments. What what do you make of that? This is one of the worst proposals that has ever been put forward with respect (laughs) to taxation. And let me see if I can explain why. Uh, Quarterly capitalism is in fact a perfectly responsible part of what you want to do. If she's really serious about about this, does she mean to say that companies ought not to issue quarterly reports on their statements? Of course they ought to issue these things because they tell you a lot of information. But the quarterly report is always accompanied by footnotes. And what the footnotes do is they tell you the accounting conventions and the special assumptions that are made before they get these numbers. Any sophisticated investor is worried about the long-term perspective success of this or that other venture. So what they do is they take the raw quarterly capital numbers and they correct for all of these things. Uh, So what it is is the quarterly capitalism is not the be-all and end-all. It's simply the first stage in a lot of very complicated kinds of developments. And there are many cases, like for example, when a company goes from a large gain to a large loss, that having a quarterly report is a very powerful signal that something is deeply wrong with the business, and that's in fact enormously beneficial.
Uh, the second point about all of this is she supposes that somehow as you require people to keep stuff in for a long period of time, it will aid in the governance of the business. But she doesn't understand that there's a genuine problem here, uh, that people who hold on to stock have a grand total of 0.001% of the publicly traded shades of a public corporation. And nothing they do by way of voice is going to make the slightest bit of difference. Nothing they try to do to monitor the firm in the way will improve them if they're locked in. What a sale does is if you now sell this stock, you're making a declaration to the world from which you get 100% of the gain or suffer 100% of the loss. This thing is really good, so I'm going to invest in more. This thing is bad, I'm selling out. So you get much more powerful signals in this particular world if you allow for the sale and you get virtually no benefit whatsoever if you deal with the governors. Then, of course, what you're doing is you're creating capital rigidity. So if people realize that they're going to get a lower rate of of tax if they wait for six years, they may actually hold on. But in the interim, the company goes to hell. And if, in fact, you would allow for the earlier sales to take place, it would have been easier to organize buyouts or something or another. And so what happens is this deferred method means that you can't act on information as it comes available, which means, in effect, that you're going to make the capital markets vastly more inefficient than they would otherwise be. Uh, the level of ignorance that went into this particular program is nothing short of stupendous. Now, there's another angle of this piece, which is that Clinton has also suggested zeroing out the capital gains tax entirely in places that are economically distressed. And and Richard, it's not hard to imagine some Republicans getting behind that. There are some faint echoes there of the old enterprise zone idea. You give a preferential treatment to areas that have sort of the most acute need for economic progress. How, How does that proposal strike you? Well, think of the way in which private people invest and then think about the way in which you'd like the government to invest. What private people do is they see an inferior situation developing and the capital flees. And at that particular point, either the guys who are running the thing decide that they're going to reinvigorate the business by making rational changes or other people will start to flee as well. Those are both very helpful responses. If, in fact, what you do is you reward incompetence by putting good money and have it chasing bad, chances are that the great Solons who messed it up the first time are going to mess it up the second time as well. The favorite illustration I have of this comes from a slightly different area. It's Kilo against the new London Corporation. And one of the reasons why they had all these terribly designed programs is they received a grant from the state of about 70-odd million dollars, and they knew that they would lose it unless they invested in an infrastructure. So they invested in infrastructure when they don't have anything to put on the structure that was inside, and the whole thing turned out to be lost. And that's exactly what's going to happen if you do this at the federal level. Um, One of the reasons why we are very much in favor of free trade, at least I am, is because if you allow foreign imports to come in and undersell American businesses, they're going to have to reform themselves. Governments are going to have to reform themselves in order to meet the competition. It's exactly the same thing here. If you subsidize losers, they will never reverse reform themselves. So the situation will end up even worse than before. So that's the first problem. The second problem problem is the map that is, comes down from Google does not tell you what is an economically depressed zone and what is not. Somebody actually has to draw those boundary lines and decide what goes
goes in and what goes out, the political intrigue that will take place on this are going to be enormous. And then after it takes place, the misguided investment inside the area is going to be enormous as well. There are ways to do this which are much better, and these are self-assessed or zones. So if you want to put up a special assessment district in, say, Hyde Park, where I live in Chicago, what you do is you get all the local merchants agree, and they will put a higher tax on themselves and spend the extra revenues that they receive on localized improvement. But this is a point of self-assessment. So you have to both pay in order to receive, and then when you do it, you'll monitor the expenditures. If the monies come from the outside, they're going to be wasted. If they come from the inside, they will be spent much more intelligently. Another proposal here. This one is basically an exact replica of something that President Obama has proposed in the past, capping the amount of charitable deductions someone can claim on their taxes at 28%. And Richard, a lot of your small government compatriots claim that one of the fundamental problems with the tax code is this the maze of deductions and, and credits that you can claim. Um, good idea to start pruning here with the charitable deductions? Well, that's the worst place to start rather than the best place to start. Uh, the point about a charitable deduction is if you think about it from the point of view of consumption is that somebody who gives away $10,000 is $10,000 poorer and somebody who receives it is $10,000 richer. And so what you're doing with a charitable deduction at the top marginal rate is you're saying to the people who give it away, we will treat it as though you have never received it at all. As these marginal rates start getting very high and you start to put this deduction in, now the calculus changes. So if the top rate is, say, 43% and the rate that they give you is 28%, what they're saying is if you want to help your fellow man, you have to give up 15% of the amount of stuff that you have. So you're worse off by making it. Now, whenever you put a tax on this, you formally announce that the tax is on the payor. Whenever you actually see the way the world works, the tax turns out to fall at least partially on the payee, that is the donated groups. So what happens is you're going to drive charitable deductions down. Now, are these charitable deductions good or bad? Well, it's the same point about the self-assessment differences. When people give charitable money to organizations, they just don't throw it out the door and let it land and do what they will. They sit on the so my wife and I are very active in the American Jewish World Service. It's not that we just give them money. She's on the board of that particular operation, and we spend a lot of time talking about the way in which we ought to focus our business plan, how we ought to target donors, how we ought to target our project partners and all the rest of that stuff. And the monitoring is what makes that money worthwhile. And if you, in effect, cut out this stuff, the government's going to start taking it over, and you lose all the private focus and all the private monitors. So essentially what you have to see see this is as a judgment that we know how to run industrial policy so well that we're willing to destroy the private sector, at least in part, in order to increase the scope of government transfers and aids. It's a terrible idea uh, to try to do this. What it should be is exactly the opposite. Now, the last point I'll make is if you, in fact, lower uh, the tax and make it flatter, it turns out the charitable deduction is worth less. And some charities have been perverse enough to say, we want a high progressive tax so that we can keep these valuable deductions. That's a dangerous argument. What happens is if you lower the overall tax system, uh, the wealth of the rich are going to increase, and the amount of charity that they're willing to give will go up even if the deduction goes down. And your first business is always to try to expand the size of the pie. And if if you do that, the charitable deductions will follow. Another Obama favorite that Hillary is embracing is the, the so-called Buffett rule, named, of course, after Warren Buffett. This, so this would put an alternative minimum tax of at least 30 percent 
on people who are making a million dollars or more a year. And Warren Buffett's famous line where this is concerned is that he thinks he's paying a lower tax rate than his secretary, and, and that seems to him fundamentally unfair. Well, uh, untangle this for us, Richard. Well, the first thing is you've got to understand the, the Buffett racket before you understand the Buffett tax. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, look, one of the things that happens is if you're a tax lawyer is that you don't care nearly as much about the rate if you can remove large amounts of income, economic income from the tax system altogether. And so folks like Buffett understand this game perfectly well, and they use a combination of depreciation deductions, the stepped-up basis of death, and the phony partnership allocations under Section 704 to get huge amounts of income outside the system. So he may well be in a position where his wealth is increased by $100 million in a particular year, all of it in marketable and liquid securities. And what he does is he takes out an income of $2 million. So if it turns out he pays a lower capital gains rack, the man is going to be generous and to say, okay, I'll double my tax on the $2 million, but he's not going to touch the hundreds of millions of dollars that this particular tax scam goes out. And so people like myself who are in favor of uh, flat taxes want the flat tax to be on an accurate base, and they don't want to allow these deductions, which are an excess of the economic losses that you've had. And this is a position that I started to work on in the 1970s when these tax shelters were very, very big. So he gets that wrong. The second thing he gets wrong is you don't need an alternative minimum tax if you get the first tax system right. And so what the minimum tax says is we don't care how this other system works. We're going to just put this thing on. Well, you've got to figure out what the base to that thing is. It's a very set of difficult set of complications. And now what you're doing is you're giving everybody two strategic options, and it's extremely difficult to administer. So you get rid of the alternative minimum tax, and then you rationalize the tax system by making it flatter and by making sure that you don't give these fake deductions to people like Warren Buffett who don't deserve them. Now, how big is this thing? I really don't know about it in all particulars. But boy, oh boy, I do know a number of people who understand this particular stuff and they can work all of these swaps. And it's not just domestically. Uh, when I was a tax lawyer back in the 70s, most of the stuff was that way. But now the ability to engage in certain kinds of transfers into an international transactions is larger. And this ties in with the subject that I wrote about last week on defining ideas, which was the fake Apple tax deductions that they got by parking money in Ireland off in a mythical uh, head office, which essentially had no tax responsibilities at all. Stop all that stuff, and you don't need to worry about the minimum tax. Also, that was the topic of last week's Libertarian podcast. Yes, I, that's exactly that. so, I, I do so many things, I, I can't even keep them straight. <laughs> so last, last thing that I'll ask you about today, the, the estate tax. Um, Hillary would move the rate up from 40% to 45 and she dropped the exemption down. So it, it currently doesn't capture you unless you're over about – I think this year it's $5.5 million. Yep. She dropped that down to 3 and a half. That's right. And Richard, her, her supporters will say these are only the richest of the rich. They can't take the money with them. Why not a few more bucks from these folks? Well, I mean the answer is how is it going to impact everything throughout the overall tax system? So if you can't take it all with you, what you're going to do is to see all sorts of crazy distortions. Uh, people will in effect consume more than they really want to because they now know that a dollar of consumption to them, um, if you for the deferred, is going to be only 60% worth of gain to somebody else. They will probably also try to take a greater exam advantage of the exclusions that are now $14,000 per dollar 
donor per donee. Uh, for people who are in the under 20 million bracket, this is serious money. For people in the 100 million bracket, this is not. So if you're looking at the two impacts, for people who are in the 10, 20, $20 million, dropping the exemption level is going to be very important because essentially what you're doing is you're now subjecting for a couple uh, basically another 3 or actually $4 million in tax at a 45% rate. That's real dollars. It's uh, a relative to a $15 million estate. Uh, for somebody who's in the $100 million bracket, uh, that's chum change. What really matters is in fact the increase for this thing by 5%. Now, if you're then looking at other kinds of businesses, one of the things that you're always worried about is if, in fact, you have um, this high estate tax, is it going to require the sale of assets in one form or another in order to be able to pay it? This is a huge problem that is faced by many closed corporations, and it can disrupt the transfer of control. So with all of these particular complications that are in there, the question you have to ask is, do you want to have a tax which at some random event, i.e. the time of death, is going to put this at incredible burden on everybody. If, in fact, you believe, as I do, that the consumption tax is the ideal situation, uh, what you do is do it exactly the opposite. You want the estate tax to be at zero, and you want things to be taxed when they're taken out of that locks box, and those spent for everybody else. This gives you a much smoother function, and it also gets rid of these terrible inequities. And so, I mean, just to mention the Epstein family history, which was an estate tax-sensitive history at a time when it was a much lower exemption than it is today, uh, my in-laws both died in their early to mid-60s, and this was a very heavy burden. Uh, my mother dies at 95, and you know what? Uh, she's had 30 years to sort of rationalize everything. And so the effective tax on the 60-year-old is about 25 to 30 times greater than it is on the 95 years old. Do we really want to have a tax system which is tied to longevity in that particular way? I think the answer to that question in general is no. And so my view is you just get rid of this thing, go to the uniform consumption tax at the time time of death, you don't have to give the stepped-up basis, which people now get for free under the income tax code. Uh, you can just ride through this thing in a much more rational fashion. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.